Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words. So listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast. And as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hello once again and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I'm your host, Kim. Today was a case suggestion, or today is a case suggestion from Sandra, who is actually the person responsible for introducing me to podcasts back um, several years ago when she said, you should listen to Serial, I think you'd like it. So technically, this is all her fault. I mean, the fact that I have a podcast, not today's case. Today's case is definitely not Sandra's fault. Today's case is also fairly complicated with lots of different players, um, some that can be named, some can't. Um, Complicated never scared me off, so hopefully I can present this in a way that you can keep track of everyone. It is also quite graphic. Um, I found myself feeling pretty melancholy after researching it. It's a tremendously sad story. I mean, all the stories that I have researched and done, but they, they all do get under my skin and, and kind of nudge me in that place that I don't know if it's just like a place of compassion or if it's just a little place in your brain that just says these things shouldn't happen. But some of the cases like this one in particular, they just dig a little deeper and they're harder for me to shake off. This is the brutal rape and murder of Nina Cordopat of Edmonton, Alberta, and of Ellie Mae Myers of Fort Saskatchewan. Nina was First Nations, and I'm not sure if she was full First Nations or Métis, um, and I'm also not sure what nation or tribe that her family was a part of, but that's only important to her story because, as many of you are aware, at least in our country of Canada, First Nations people are not well represented in the media a lot of times, um, or by people in general for that matter. And I think that this case touches on some of the unique challenges that Indigenous families face. 
At the time of her murder, she was 13. Uh, she was born on October 3rd, 1995, to her mom, Peach Atkinson, and dad, uh, Tim Cordopat. She was the fourth child at a family out of six um, kids altogether. Nina Cordopat was also, as is so many of the cases and stories that I've done, very normal, happy, grade seven student. She was very loving and caring and definitely liked to have fun. Uh, she liked to dance in front of the mirror, talk on the phone with her many girlfriends. She loved clothes and fashion. She would do numerous wardrobe changes throughout her day. Loved to make pancakes and would whip up, whip up these giant batches for her family, complete with strawberries, whipped cream. I mean, carb-loading breakfasts. She's a girl after my own heart. She was also a prankster who would sometimes hide on her mom outside in the dark until she panicked. Nina had recently won a modeling contest and wanted to become a model full-time. She was obviously very beautiful, but she was also able to see the beauty in those around her, and she would also often make sure that her friends knew that she thought that they were beautiful as well. She had wanted to do the modeling or, or like an actress, because she wanted to be a role model for Indigenous women. She had long, thick, dark hair. And like I said, she was very pretty. And in 2004, she actually won a local modeling contest and was picked by Chan International Models to enroll in their professional modeling program. She had gotten an agent actually on her own. Nina also had a very ingrained sense of fairness and justice. According to an article that was written in the Calgary Herald, her grade five teacher, Tammy Wildman, said of her, quote, she wanted people to be kind to each other and she wanted the world to be fair, end quote. In 2005, she was in grade seven and attending an optional course for, at her school on life skills. She was very headstrong, very assertive, and would fight for the rights of her siblings or anybody else that she didn't feel had been treated fairly fairly or was breaking a rule. So if you broke a rule, uh, you would hear about it. Now, one of the really more interesting things about Nina, when she was about probably 11 or so, she, for some reason, she, she made a couple of untrue statements to some friends about abuse at home. And Child Protective Services was actually, they opened a file on the family, which of was later closed as completely unfounded. Her parents never really knew why that had happened. They think it might have been, you know, her age and not really understanding the consequences of it. But once the family moved to sort of the west side of town, that whole issue kind of settled down and it never reoccurred. So it might have been peer-based. Um, it does kind of color the story a little bit. She was a participant in the Boys and Girls Club of Canada um, from around the time that she was 11. Um, the Boys and Girls Club of Canada, is, uh, if you're not familiar with it, is across Canada. It's a youth organization that was begun in St. John's, New Brunswick in 1900s. In 1900. It works with families and, and youths to provide them opportunities to develop their skills, you know, grow into productive adult citizens. They serve probably 200,000 kids and youths across Canada. 
They have programs for literacy, life skills, sports and recreations. They have some stay in school programs, substance abuse prevention, um, that kind of thing. And they also provide um, some special needs to those that require it and family support. Due to the allegations that she had made and the fact that she's First Nation, that had made Nina a bit of an at-risk youth. Uh, even though she was doing really well in school and she didn't have any other behavioral issues. She was not using drugs or partying, anything like that. But things can go south very quickly. Um, so I think that that was why she was in the Boys and Girls Club to begin with. And she had a mentor named Crystal Bunce. Crystal and Nina became very close to each other. And at the time that they met, um, they were 11 and 17, respectively. I'm not sure how they operate, but Nina sometimes would stay over at Crystal's. I know that with the Big Brothers and Sisters program, overnights are not allowed. But I think with the Boys and Girls Club, with the kids being um, so much more at risk, it's probably um, fine to be doing that. There's a podcast called Native Trailblazers that um, they did a remembrance podcast on Nina on October 5th, 2018. And Crystal Bunce, Nina's mentor, was interviewed in that episode. She talks about Nina and her best friend, Kitty, who we're going to get to in a minute. It's, um, I think it was a live recording. Uh, there's some kind of some background noise and stuff like that in it, but it's, um, it's really worth a listen if you have a, it's two hours long. So if you have a couple hours and like to listen to it, um, it's called Native Trailblazers. And that episode aired on October 5th, 2018. So much like a lot of teenage girls, even from my own generation, which was around, you know, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, the mall was a favorite hangout. And so in Edmonton, if you're not from Canada, they have uh, one of the world's largest malls. And at the and at one time, it was the largest mall in the world, but I think it was 2004. It was um, eclipsed by, I think it was the Mall of America or maybe the Dubai Mall. But still the 23rd largest in the world. It's got over 24,000 people employed, uh, more than 800 stores, nine attractions, two hotels, and over 100 restaurants. And just as an interesting side note, four people have actually died in the West Edmonton Mall. Three people died in 1986 when the Mindbender roller coaster cars um, derailed. And a 22-year-old man drowned in the indoor lagoon in December 2000 after a night of binge drinking um, at one of the restaurants there and wasn't found until the next morning. Nina had a best friend named Kitty, which I have mentioned, and I'm sure that isn't her real name, but she was 13 at the time, so she can't be named. So hopefully you are with me so far. We have Nina and Kitty, best friends, Mom and Dad, Picha and Tim, and then the Big Brother, or Boys and Girls Club mentor, Crystal. Nina and Kitty had stayed for a couple of nights at Crystal's, and this is in late March, early April of 2005. Nina and Kitty had stayed at a couple of nights over at Crystal's, and then before school on the morning of April 1st, 2005, which was a Friday, Nina asked her mom if she could sleep over at her friend Kitty's place, which um, she had done several times before that, so that, that was allowed. The next afternoon, she called Crystal and asked if um, her and Kitty could stay over that night again. And Crystal had told them, you know, you should probably go home. It's been a few days, um, and your mom and dad are probably missing you. So what they did 
is um, Nina told her mom that she was going to sleep over at Kitty's house again. And then Kitty told her mom that she was going to sleep over at Nina's house. Where the girls actually planned on sleeping that night, it's not very clear. I'm thinking the probable plan was to show up on Crystal's doorstep and hope that she was going to let them crash there that night. Nina and Kitty were seen on surveillance footage at the West Edmonton Mall on April 2nd, just kind of wandering the shops and stopping at the food court for snacks. So that's what they were doing during the day and into the evening. On the early morning of April 4th, the Monday, which also happens to be my birthday, the owner of the golf course was doing his rounds at the Edmonton Springs Resort Golf Course. And on the 4th fairway, he stumbled upon what from a distance he thought was maybe a tarp. But it was in fact the battered and bloodied body of a young woman who was initially a Jane Doe. Um, and they thought maybe a sex worker, which again brings us back to some of the challenges faced by Indigenous um, women and girls that um, a lot of times they are just quickly brushed off or assumed to be sex workers when that's definitely not the case. She was wearing uh, bloodstained jeans and a hoodie and there didn't appear to be any signs of a sexual assault, but it was definitely clear that she had been brutally beaten. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Now, meanwhile, of course, Peacha and Tim had been calling around and looking for their daughter without any luck and had obviously very quickly discovered that Kitty was also missing um, from her parents and like a frantic search was started. Peacha, she did not call the police immediately because, well, that whole um, child protective services thing from before, Nina had always found her way back home, so she thought that maybe she was just, you know, at another friend's. But when Peacha saw on the news that a Jane Doe had been found, um, sounded like it could be Nina, that's when she called in a missing persons report, and Peacha and Crystal um, continued to search on their own, hoping that they were going to find her again at a friend's house or maybe at the mall. Crystal says on Native Trailblazers that Nina had called her either late at night on the 2nd or early morning in the 3rd to tell her that her and and Kitty were going to be going to the very first rave party. Um, And she was excited about it, but Crystal told her to go home that she didn't think it was a good idea. According to Kitty's later testimony at what turns out to be several trials, So here's what sort of transpired, and and get ready because it's pretty brutal. Um, As a side note on here, Kitty's testimony was never disputed. There was never any claims against her that she was in any way involved or culpable for what had happened to Nina. Um, She's very much a victim herself and was mercilessly crucified in some early media reports uh, for being a bystander. But as we're going to hear later... She was a terrified and very young child of bystander um, who would have been frightened to the, I would think, the very core of her soul. 
At the food court in the mall in the late evening, Kitty and Nina were approached by a woman named Stephanie Bird, who was 17 at the time, and she can be named because she was later tried as an adult, and 21-year-old Joseph Labukin. Kitty knew Stephanie a little bit, but had never met Joseph. They had a brief conversation. They asked the um, they asked the two if they would like to go to what they called a bush party, um, or like a rave. They agreed and were really excited about it. So now Nina was not a partier and had never had a boyfriend. So this would have been really exciting as an invitation to, well, to both of them. This was around midnight when they left the mall together and they walked to a 1991 Ford Tempo, which was driven by Stephanie's boyfriend, 36-year-old Michael Briscoe. So Stephanie's 17 Briscoe's 36, um, and then also there was 17-year-old Michael Williams, who was, he kind of went by a street name, Pyro, and 16-year-old Buffy. Um, now, Buffy is also underage. I think she was 15 or 16 at the time. Um, she's just known as Buffy. Um, Kitty knew, she knew Buffy and Michael Williams, who I'm just going to call Williams because there's two Michaels and I don't want it to get confusing. Uh, she had sort of seen him around, but she didn't, she did not know Briscoe. Okay. So now we have Nina and Kitty, Stephanie and Briscoe, they're the couple, Williams and Joseph, and then Buffy. So there are some conflicting stories because of course, once everyone was caught, they all started throwing each other under the bus. But from the statements of fact in Kitty's testimony, this is kind of how things went down for the most part. Briscoe was the one driving, and Stephanie was in the front seat, uh, front passenger seat with him, and everybody else was crammed into the back seat, kind of overlapping and on each other's laps. Now, there were reports that both Kitty and Nina were sort of kissing and making out with Joseph, but um, I, I don't know if that's true or not. Again, they're young girls. I, who knows? Um, but Buffy and Williams were definitely making out because they had been dating for two weeks. So, you know, they're practically married. And the golf course that they drove to where this party was going to be, it was about 17 kilometers away from the mall and it was actually in Spruce Grove which is just like a little um, hamlet outside of uh, Edmonton so when they got there of course they all piled out of the car and they start walking Joseph and Stephanie went to the back of the car and got some tools out of the trunk and after about 15 minutes of walking and the two girls, you know, they didn't really hear any sounds of a party going on. They were starting to get a little, a little sketched out. And then the conversation kind of turned dark. They started talking about ritual killings and zombies and stuff. So they were, they were starting to get, the two of them together were starting to get a little bit concerned. According to one of the reports that I heard is that Stephanie hit Nina in the back of the head with a wrench and actually knocked her down to the ground. And when, of course, Nina said, well, you know, like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? She said that um, she was pissing her off, but she didn't really understand why. So when she got up, she went to Joseph, um, you know, to 
I don't know, be comforted or something. Maybe she felt she trusted him more than the others. And he whispered something to her and she started to, sorry, my phone keeps going off. He whispered something to her and she started to cry and, and said no and started struggling. It's bell talk day. And, um, Tim has decided to send me everything he wants to say in a million different texts, because apparently, um, every text is a bell donation for mental health. So very good of him, but it just means that my phone just keeps going off a million times. Okay. Nina got up, went to Joseph for comfort. Now he whispered something to her, um, that made her start to cry and say no and start to struggle. He then knocked her down and she was then held down by both Joseph and Williams. But another one of them said that Williams didn't do anything, but uh, clearly he did. Now, Stephanie told Kitty to let's go back to the car because she didn't need to see what was going to happen. So clearly Stephanie knew what was going to happen. Um, and so they went back to the car together. And of course, Kitty was just terrified. Um, she didn't know what was happening to her friend Nina, but I mean, can only imagine. And in fact, Nina was raped by Joseph first. Um, and then Williams. Joseph told her that she, he was going to kill her. Um, and she begged for him, you know, please make it quick so that it doesn't hurt which I, I can't imagine knowing that you're going to die. Uh, just, anyways, it's awful. They, um, so one of them had a knife. It might've been Joseph and they tried to slit her throat with it, but the knives were dull. So you can only imagine this poor girl who she, she must know it's the end of the road for her. And she's begging them to make it quick. And they're trying to slit her throat, which I guess would be a quick way to die, but it's dull. So they're barely making it like, I just, I just can't even imagine. And, um, so then he tried, he took one of the wrenches and held it, you know, on each end over her neck to try to cut off or crush her airway. Uh, while Buffy stood on her stomach and then Williams took a sledgehammer. Now this part is, is disputed later that he took a sledgehammer to her groin to try to hide the evidence. Um, and then hit her on the head with the sledgehammer. Um, and then at that point she stopped moving and then they stabbed her in the throat and, um, tried to set her clothes on fire. Um, and then they all left, went back to the car. Joseph tried to clean up his, bloody hands and arms with a water bottle that he had in the car. Um, what they told Kitty is that they had left her there um, to run home naked. She says that Briscoe was quiet the whole time and didn't say anything. And of course they had threatened Kitty that if she said anything, if she tried to run away, that they would do whatever they had done to Nina, which of course she didn't know what they had done to Nina, but I think she had a pretty good idea. They then went to some kind of diner, probably like a Denny's, and ate dinner, and then they did one of those dash and dines, and they drove around for a while. Stephanie and this 36-year-old Briscoe lived together in a hotel. 
Um, they had been together for six months, so they were like an old married couple. Uh, it was a place called the Windmill Hotel on the outskirts of town. They dropped Williams off at his house, and then everybody kind of went back to this hotel together. And they actually stayed hunkered down there with Kitty um, as sort of their captor for almost a week. Of course, Kitty would have just been absolutely terrified. I can't imagine at 13 to be around these people that are pure evil. On one day, and I'm not sure what the day this was, I think it was about the 7th or 8th of April, Stephanie and Kitty went back to the mall together. Now, at this point, Joseph had gone, I don't know, he'd gone home or he'd disappeared somewhere, so he wasn't around anymore. So at the mall, they did some, I don't know, a little bit of shoplifting, just, I don't know, mall stuff um, that Stephanie wanted to do. Now, this is according to Crystal's account. She says that she noticed Kitty in the mall at this time um, because Crystal and Picha were still searching for Nina. And she shouted to her. And when she saw her, she started to run away. So Crystal had to kind of chase her down. And when she got to her, Kitty said that she'd been kidnapped and she had to go back or else they were going to kill her too. And so, of course, that obviously would have completely freaked out Crystal and her mom, Picha. Now, things get really muddy here when it comes to how each of the five were actually arrested and found. Now, in Crystal's recollection, Buffy was actually outside the mall in a police car at the time that they found Kitty and that Crystal knew Buffy as well from the Boys and Girls Club and described her as a like a foster kid who was suffering from fetal alcohol syndrome and had a ton of mental health issues, um, which I believe clearly she did, because according to some of the other reports that I read, she had sharpened her teeth and was um, addicted to meth and basically living on the street with this street name Buffy, which was based, of course, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Anyways, Crystal spoke to Buffy in the car and asked her, what, you know, what did you do? What did you do? Uh, that kind of thing. And, and Buffy said she, she didn't do it. She didn't have anything to do with it. Dr. Graham Dowling did the autopsy on Nina. He found 15 lacerations on her face and scalp, a broken jaw with shallow cuts on her neck that had like just barely pierced the skin, depressed fractures on the skull, her jaw was split in two. She had bruises on the back of her hands from being held down. The cause of death was determined to be blunt force cranial hemorrhage. There was quite a few DNA samples taken from Nina, of which Williams and Joseph could not be excluded, um, but Briscoe was excluded from the DNA samples. Crystal attended both Joseph and Stephanie's trials and she saw all the pictures and everything. She said that Nina was completely unrecognizable. She had 73 stab wounds, basically from head to toe, head to toe, five bludgeon wounds. Her jaw was broken actually in 10 places. They think that she had been dragged to where they left her, um, tried to cut her clothing off and burn it. Uh, and they had, now she says they had smashed her pelvic area to prevent from knowing who had raped her. Um, they had also scalped her and they had to 
basically, this is terrible, staple her scalp back. We're using 120 staples because in First Nations culture, an open casket funeral is really important. It's sacred to them. So, but in the end, she had to be cremated because her, her body was in such bad shape. Now, the reason why I say that the smashed pelvic area um, might not have actually happened as it did in, as I think it was one of them that said they did it, but um, Dr. Dowling's autopsy report did not show that she had had any kind of, that kind of injury anyways to her pelvic area or to her groin area. Um, obviously she was raped and so that would have had injuries, but not what a sledgehammer would have done to her pelvic. So I don't really know if that actually happened or not. It doesn't really matter because she certainly went through enough trauma as it was. Not surprisingly, all five of them were charged with first degree murder, kidnapping and aggravated sexual assault. Briscoe and Joseph were tried together as adults and then Buffy was the only one that was charged and sentenced as a minor. Both Williams and Stephanie were tried as adults, and then all three of those youths were charged separately, or tried separately. So we'll start with Stephanie. In 2008, she was convicted of the kidnapping and aggravated sexual assault, but only of manslaughter, not murder. She had claimed a legal defense of abandonment, which is that she might have originally gone in with the plan and knowing what was going to happen, but she abandoned that plan um, by leaving and going to sit in the car with Kitty. She actually at that time got 12 years, which Peacha called a slap in the face. But at that time, the ban on publishing her name was lifted because she was charged as an adult. So that was some solace. Um, Peaches said, quote, she can't hide anymore. The public will know her name and this way other children will be safe. In December 2009, the Supreme Court actually struck down the manslaughter conviction and upped it to first degree, changing the sentence to life with no eligibility for parole for 10 years. Peaches said at that time, we were bracing ourselves just in case it was bad news I'm really hoping it sends a message out there to other people who are going through this or who decided to murder people that justice will be served. Now we'll move on to the 36-year-old sex pervert, Michael Aaron Briscoe. He was actually acquitted in 2007, but the Supreme Court of Canada ordered a retrial in 2010 based on something called mens rea. The trial judge found that what they call actus reus for basically being a party to the offense was proven, but this mens rea, which is basically the intent, um, had not been. Now the Court of Appeal actually overturned the acquittals and ordered a new trial because there had they deemed that there was something called willful blindness. And they stated even Briscoe's own statements to the police on which the trial judge relied heavily suggest that he had a strong, well-founded suspicion that someone would be killed at the golf course and that he may have been willfully blind to the kidnapping and prospect of sexual assault. 
His statements also show that he deliberately chose not to inquire about what the members of the group intended to do because he did not want to know. The trial judge's failure to consider Briscoe's knowledge from that perspective constitutes a legal error which necessitates a new trial on all charges. He was then found guilty of first-degree murder and is serving his life sentence without parole eligibility for 25 years which is the mandatory sentence for first-degree murder for adults. Buffy, in 2009, was sentenced to four years in custody and three years supervised probation. She was released from custody in November... No, in November 9th, 2016, she actually um, was free. Probation was done and everything. She was 27. She had said, quote, Since we started this... Being adult is never easy. I can clearly see that we, that all we can do is transition the best way we can because let's face it, jumping into things isn't always the greatest thing to do, even with the best intentions. According to her letter that was submitted by Buffy's probation officer, she had a couple setbacks along the way. She had a couple breaches for the term on the terms of her probation. But in her letter, Buffy thanked the judge for giving me more than a few chances and added, I'm pleased to inform you that I have not had any breaches in the past year. She walked out of the courtroom a free woman, holding hands with her fiancé and smiling without a further care in the world. And the next contestant, Joseph Laboucan. In 2007, Joseph denied any guilt after throwing all of his friends under the bus and was convicted of first-degree murder to cheers and applause in the courtroom. At that trial, he said to Peacha and Tim, I'm sorry I did not save your daughter. I did not hurt her. I believe there was no justice done here. <sighs> he appealed on grounds that his testimony was rejected and untruthful, and the appeal was denied as the court ruled that they... Um, the judge properly assessed and weighed the evidence of all the witnesses, including the accused, without undermining the presumption of innocent or innocence or the burden of proof. And last but certainly not least, we have Michael Williams, good old Pyro. He was really the worst of the bad apples here. He received a life sentence for first-degree murder. Um, we're going to come back to him a bit later because he's a complete psychopath. Judge Janet Franklin said of him, quote, she, referring to Nina, died in the darkness of night on a cold, hard field without any comfort, but rather in the company of Michael Williams and others who tormented, beat, and raped her in a vicious and senseless act of violence. Michael Williams seemingly felt nothing, end quote. Um, and if you thought that we were going to end the story here, I am sad to tell you there is more. In May 2005, in Fort Saskatchewan, the beaten body of a young woman was found in a farmer's field. She was missing a pinky. She was identified as 33-year-old sex worker Ellie Mae Myers, who her friend Melanie Hooley said, quote, All of us have made choices sometimes in life that have got us in a wrong place, wrong time or maybe something that we didn't want to do, but it doesn't make us a bad person. And she, above all people, was the first one to be giving and had a heart of gold. Even though she didn't walk the path lined with gold, her heart was full of gold. 
end quote. That case was cold until 2010 or 11, when they ran some DNA through their magic DNA database and came up with three matches to recently convicted people in Edmonton. And that would be Briscoe, Laboucan, and Stephanie Bird. Two days before Nina's murder, Laboucan, Briscoe, and Bird met up with um, Ellie Meyer. They picked her up. Um, she was working as a sex worker to earn some money to support her drug habit on 118th Avenue in Edmonton. Uh, once they got to the field, Briscoe and Stephanie left the car so that Laboucan could have sex with um, Ellie May. At some point, Stephanie said that Ellie May went running by, followed by Laboucan and Briscoe, who were chasing her. She said she was running away from them, and it looked like they were hitting her. For some reason, she told Stephanie, so I don't know if she gave herself away that she was that she was actually more involved than she said, but she said that um, Ellie May had told her that she wouldn't tell anybody what happened, and instead that she was just going to walk to the highway and, and tell anyone who asked that she had fallen um, to try to get out of it, but they had told her no. And Stephanie was actually sitting with her, struggling to breathe, and the two guys came back and told Stephanie to go wait in the car and a few minutes later they returned without her. Two days later after that, Laboucan showed Ellie May's pinky finger, which he had kept in the freezer between two pieces of bread um, to a teenage girl that was in his motel room with her. And that, so this, they believe that this murder happened on April 1st, which was only two days before um, Nina was killed. And when he showed the pinky finger to this teenage girl, that was on the same day that Nina was later killed that evening. Without Laboucan's conviction in Nina's murder, his day, his DNA would never have been in that databank. Um, and the police wouldn't have gotten that clue, so that case would have remained cold. Um, and that case, that really comforted Picha, who uh, had said at least the Meyer family didn't have to sit through the testimony about how she died. I'm thankful they don't have to sit through that. I wish Laboucan had done that to us. Um, Stephanie was actually not charged in Ellie May's death, but Briscoe and Joseph were, and once again, Briscoe was acquitted. And Joseph got a second life sentence added to his, but of course concurrent, so basically nothing. But wait, we aren't done yet. Michael Williams, aka Pyro, what has he been up to? Well, he's been transferred a few times for what the corrections calls maladaptive behavior. At one point, he accused some other convicts of drugging his coffee so that they could rape him, um, which was never proven. So what he did is he used the transgender card. And then normally, I would have referred to Williams throughout the story as she. Um, but he is a big fat liar with his pants on fire, so he doesn't get that respect from me. He is currently being held in some solitary confinement, awaiting a second transfer from Kent to the Fraser Valley Women's Institution. They had actually tried once to move him before, as Corrections Canada 
you know, has to take those requests very seriously. But he got caught. Now, reports say he got caught having sex with female inmates and was deemed to be um, psychopathic and high risk. However, um, he was not caught having sex with female inmates. He was assaulting female inmates. Um, so now on his side, he had transgender activist Morgane Ogar, who in a bunch of tweets alluded that the three sex assaults he had allegedly committed were what their words were false allegations. And then another tweet, she said, trans, trans women are simply unsafe in men's prisons. Williams, for his part, is actually still a fully intact male. He does take hormone replacement therapy, but only two weeks a month because he wants to be able to maintain an erection, which is not something generally, if you feel you're born in the wrong body with the wrong body parts, you would want that. But apparently he still does. He does wear a bra. And other than that, has made no alterations to his lifestyle or his appearance but he is still fighting for his right to re-enter the all-women's prison. Unfortunately, Peacha died in 2015 from pneumonia while she was undergoing colon cancer treatment. Her brother Howard said, quote, she had an amazing strength, a strength I didn't even know existed in people. Uh, Peacha was very much a vocal advocate for an inquiry into the missing and murdered Indigenous women in this country, which was, was completed on June 3rd, 2019. When she was murdered, we didn't have no support. Instead, social services, child welfare, came knocking on my door, threatening to take away my other two kids because we were bad parents then, because she was murdered. In the House of Commons, it was even mentioned that she should have been into their system, otherwise this would never have happened to her. We were targeted so bad, I didn't know where to turn, I didn't have help. And as we walked through this path, I had to protect my children. Again, the system failed me. It shouldn't have, it should have supported me. Going back to the court case, She's a youth. She was sentenced as a youth, so she only has two more years to serve. But what amazed me is when I sat in that courtroom, the amount of support she had. Nothing wrong with the organizations I'm going to name, but it's just the support that she has. I Human was there. YMCA was there. The probation officers, there must have been about a thousand of them, I swear. They were all there supporting her. When I was watching the court proceedings, I was thinking, well, what about us? What about the families? What about the victims? We need to set something in place so that we don't fall through the cracks, so our children don't fall through the cracks. I want to make it a remembrance garden for the murdered and missing. And the reason why I want to do this is because some of these young ladies, some of these young men, have never been found. And that way the families can go there, plant the tree, decorate the tree, put something there, something special just for them so that they can go visit them. Instead of wondering where they are, they can put up pictures, they can do whatever they want to this tree. But we shouldn't be putting up trees to remember the murdered and missing. What we should be doing 
is trying to find them so that the families can hug them again and say, I miss you, I love you, I'm so glad you're home. How come no one or hardly anyone come and recognize that we have a problem? Great, all you people showed up. There should be hundreds, there should be thousands more saying, let's stop the violence against our people. Again, let us get us into the community so that it doesn't happen. Let us train the young girls, the young men. They don't have to turn to drugs. They don't have to turn to prostitution. They don't have to turn to alcohol. They can stop the cycle. Let us empower themselves so that they can become better people and that our people will be saved. Thank you. And that was the vicious rape and murder of sweet Nina Cordopat and Ellie Mae Myers. I think I need a drink, or at least some chocolate, maybe an entire Dairy Queen ice cream cake to wash this off my brain. Okay, next week... I'm going to be here to do this again. I hope you will join me so I don't have to be alone when I tell these awful stories. Do your thing. Rate, review, subscribe, etc., etc. Tell all your friends about me. And thank you for listening. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.